What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. The Economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Ogumbiyi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. From social pressures to old-school welfare systems, lots of things used to prevent Japanese women from staying in work. But that's now starting to change as Japan's labor market just keeps getting older and smaller. And, British listeners, when was the last time you used a penny? What could you possibly use them for? Our correspondent explains why no one gives a toss about the coins anymore. But first... an estimated 250,000 people took to the streets across Germany in one of its biggest mass demonstrations this century. They were protesting against the country's growing anti-immigrant sentiment associated with the hard-right Alternative for Germany party, or the AFD. Dass Nazis, dass Rechte und dass ähm, Faschisten in irgendeiner Form an die Macht kommen und wir sind gerade schon auf einem ganz bösen Weg. Und We're already on a very bad path, one protester said, and I'm very happy that there's so many people here showing that there is another way. And I moved to Germany in the 90s, and what this, uh, what's happening right now with the AfD is not the Germany I came to and came for, and I'm disgusted. The demonstrations were sparked by reports of a private meeting of hard-right politicians in November who discussed expelling millions of immigrants. Although the AFD has denied any involvement in the meeting, the revelations have clearly awakened the left, with many worried that fascism could be making a comeback. The protests seem to express in a very loud way the concerns that a lot of Germans have about a drift towards the hard right, and especially a rise in anti-immigrant sentiment. Max Rodenbeck is The Economist's Berlin bureau chief. Before these protests, the anti-immigration right wing has been surging in opinion polls. An unprecedented 23% of the whole German population say they would intend to vote for the Alternative for Germany or AFD party. In some states, they're actually the leading party with more than 30% of intended voters. So there's been a kind of shift in what's acceptable for people to say out loud. And even otherwise liberal people are increasingly prone to saying that, for example, certain kinds of immigrants are aliened to the national Leitkultur, a sort of fuzzy concept of what it is to be a German person. So this is an important moment for Germany with so many people expressing anger and frustration with this drift. And Max, what spurred these protests? 
Well, earlier this month, there was an investigative report published by a German nonprofit research organization called Korrektiv. And the report revealed a secretive meeting that was held in November near Potsdam, which is a little town outside of Berlin. And according to this report, in attendance at this meeting, there were neo-Nazis and sympathetic business people, as well as senior members of the AFD party. Uh, the report also claimed that two members of the center-right Christian Democrat or CDU party, which was a mainstream party in Germany, also attended the meeting. And the topic of the discussion is said to have been the creation of a kind of master plan to force the deportation of millions of people currently living in German, who are apparently not quite German enough for the hard right. And what does the AFD had to say about all this? Well, the leaders of the party deny any participation in the meeting and say this is part of a smear campaign by the left. And they say it was a private meeting that does not really reflect their policy. One of the top leaders of the AFD, Alice Weidel, has in the past described it as scandalous that left-wing activists using what she calls Stasi methods have attacked private meetings to spy on respectable citizens. But it's a fact that one of Alice Weidel's senior aides Roland Hartwig was actually among those in attendance, and she has now distanced herself from him. She's actually fired him from his job as an advisor. If there was already growing anti-immigration sentiment, then why has this hit such a nerve in Germany? Well, as with many things in Germany, the answer goes back to history. I mean, for many Germans, it evoked similar plans that were discussed in Germany under the Nazis. Uh, this may sound a little bit exaggerated, but it just shows how raw this nerve still is in Germany. Um, some examples of what the placards at the most recent protests, they give some idea of how people were feeling. One placard read, for example, a vote for AFD is so 1933, or never again is now, or... Now we can see what we would have done in our grandparents' position. So people are definitely referring back to the pain of the Nazi era and not wanting to relive this kind of thing. And it's significant that two dozen social Democrat politicians have called for a ban on the AFD due to its, what they called its extremist associations. Max, do you think a ban of the AFD is actually feasible or even likely? I think it's unlikely. German courts have only twice banned a political party in the past eight decades, and that was seven decades ago. And it's just a fact that the AFD continues to hold second position in the polls in Germany, and European elections are just coming up. And it seems unlikely that the party should be banned in such a short order before an election, where they're likely to do pretty well. You actually met with Alice Weidel, one of the co-leaders of the AFD, late last year. And we both discussed that conversation on this show. How does your discussion about the party's proposed policies align with what you now know? Well, when I spoke to her, and really since the genesis of the AFD, immigration has been the party's number one issue. And they've been stirring up anti-immigration sentiment for quite a long time. But when we spoke in December, she said she believed that Germany needed to close its borders. And she pointed the finger at former Chancellor Angela Merkel, for what she called irresponsible immigration policies. She blamed immigrants, particularly Muslim immigrants, for increased crime and poor education outcomes, even though those concerns weren't backed up in fact. But at the same time, she did not propose simply expelling millions of immigrants. But now it seems that at least some people in her party do want to do that. Now, moving away from AFD, what are the more centrist political parties doing to address all of this? 
The governing center-left coalition, which is made up of Social Democrats and the Green Party and the Liberal Free Democrat Party, has injected some pretty good sense into the immigration debate just recently. In fact, last week, it passed two immigration bills in the Bundestag or German parliament. And the first of those bills, which should please conservatives, really, will make it easier to expel asylum seekers who have dubious cases and whose numbers seem to have soared since the end of the COVID pandemic. The second law, which is actually a more significant one, will make it easier for legitimate immigrants to Germany to gain citizenship. Because it's quite extraordinary that actually 13.4 million of Germany's 84 million residents don't have citizenship. It's a really high number. And more than 5 million of those people have lived in the country longer than 10 years. In some cities, the proportion is much, much higher. 45% of the population of Offenbach, which is a big town just outside of Frankfurt, are foreigners as well as a third of Munich's population and a quarter of Berlin's population. Max, where do you think this debate moves next in Germany? These big demonstrations show how the country is pretty polarized. And at the same time, it's also growing increasingly politically fragmented, with new parties emerging on both the left and the right. There are actually lots of people on the right who will dismiss these big, big protests And the fact is that in polls, it is the CDU, the sort of center-right big Christian Democratic Union, which is in the lead in the polls far ahead, and the governing coalition has actually fallen behind. So we'll have to see how this really plays out in elections. In six months' time, there are European elections and there are state elections in September in three different German states. But we're going to have to wait until the autumn of 2025 for a big national election. And I'm afraid that for a lot of Germans, that's going to be a very painful and long wait. Max, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Oris. My pleasure. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. 大村静江 is a Japanese woman in her 40s. After graduating college, she started working at an insurance company. Marika Ida writes about Japan for The Economist. But things got awkward in 2007, when she got married to a colleague. While office romances are relatively common in Japan, one of the partners is usually expected to quit, and usually that pressure falls on women. Nonetheless, Miss Obora managed to stay on for a while, 
But after she gave birth to her first child, she became a stay-at-home mom. She told me it became harder and harder for both her and her husband to keep working. So eventually she decided to quit. Deep down, she knew she wanted to keep working, but she suppressed those feelings to prioritize her husband and her child. Part of her was telling herself she enjoys being a housewife. But she kept having these strange nightmares where she's trying to run, but she can't move forward. She says she feels like all the things that she's built in her life were suddenly taken away from her. One day, she was carrying her one-year-old son, their second child, and thought, okay, it's time to get a job again. And in 2015, she managed to return to work. And even better, she found a job that she feels truly passionate about. She became a journalist at a newspaper. Miss Oboda represents an important change in Japanese society. For a very long time, Japan had a notoriously steep M-curve, meaning many women in their 30s leave the workforce, usually because of marriage or childbirth, and then they re-enter years later. Aside from that social pressure, Outdated family laws have long prevented Japanese women from working. But Japan's aging and shrinking labor market means more women are staying in the workplace now. At the same time, the cultural pressure on women to become full-time caretakers of their husbands and children has weakened. A welfare policy known as the Housewives' Income War still discourages married women from working. When dependent spouses earn less than around 1.3 million yen, which is around $9,000 a year, they're exempt from paying premiums for public pension and health insurance. According to a government report published in October last year, over 1 million married women were limiting their working hours to keep their salaries under that threshold. Policymakers are finally taking steps to change things. The government is now offering subsidies to prevent housewives' take-home pay from dropping. But this policy update alone may not be enough to mobilize the millions of female workers. According to a study in 2019 by Oshima Yasuko at RecruitWorks Institute, among housewives who re-entered the workforce, 30% ended up quitting again because they found it too difficult to balance work with child-rearing and chores. Also, re-entering the workforce as a housewife could be challenging in the first place. Under Japan's seniority-based employment system, Having a blank in your resume is not a good look. Firms will ask you what you've been doing during that time at job interviews. So if you're a housewife, you will inevitably have that blank and be treated as a less attractive candidate. Also, many firms don't want to employ mothers because they might have to suddenly take time off from work to take care of their children. So there needs to be a more fundamental change in corporate culture. It's also necessary for more men to take on the responsibility of childcare and domestic work. In 2022, just 17% of men took parental leave at companies, compared to 80% of women. In married couples, Japanese women spend five times more time on chores compared to men. Mochizuki Rie is another housewife-turned-career woman. She says, when the government speaks of gender equality, the emphasis always seems to be on making women do more. That making women active in society is an empowering government message. But she thinks there's a huge gap between what the government thinks is empowerment and what ordinary women think is empowerment. Last year, Kishida Fumio, the Japanese Prime Minister, 
announced a plan to invest in reskilling for those trying to transition back to the workforce, especially targeting housewives. But he met a huge online backlash. The idea of investing in housewives' education is a nice gesture, but many women have got the impression that these elite male politicians who never had experience raising children have no idea how hard it is. Something Miss Obora knows all about. She says she used to think being a housewife must be easy, but she couldn't have been more wrong. Japan has a long way to go when it comes to gender equality, and making progress requires effort not just from women, but men as well. This week's episode of Money Talks is taking this conversation further and asking if Japan's economy is at a turning point. For decades, the country has grappled with economic stagnation. But now, there are encouraging signs of generational and institutional shifts in attitude that could all translate into more economic dynamism. Well, that's if the policymakers can grasp the opportunity. Money Talks is available to subscribers of Economist Podcast Plus every Thursday. And if you don't have a subscription yet, follow the link in our show notes to find out more. Hello, good afternoon. Imperial Chemical, they're 44 shillings after being 43 and tempensating it twice. Uh, what's that for the add to your pension fund? Well, you should get those around 44 and a penny halfpenny. For many centuries, just using Britain's currency required some fairly advanced mathematical skills. Duncan Weldon is our Britain economics correspondent. The pound was divided into 20 shillings, and each shilling was worth 12 pennies, and each penny was further subdivided into either two half pennies or four farthings. So you had 240 pennies to the pound. Now, as you might imagine, for many years... Many, many people argued for a more straightforward system. So if we go all the way back to 1696, Christopher Wren, the architect and public thinker, he was already then arguing for a decimal system. He did eventually get his wish, but it took rather a long time. In fact, it was 1961 that the government finally dropped the farthing, the quarter penny. Because by then, its spending power had fallen so low that even bus conductors were refusing to accept them. A decade after that, in 1971, was the big change. That was decimalisation, when the pound was divided into the now familiar 100 pennies and the government stopped minting shillings and the old halfpenny. The new decimal money will be with us on D-Day. Decimal Day. The 15th of February, 1971. The pound will be divided into a hundred new pence. And we'll do our decimal shopping in pounds and new pence only. Five decades on from the last time the British government really rationally looked at its coinage and its money, some of those decisions are now looking a bit dated, mainly because there's been a lot of inflation. The price level, the overall level of prices in the economy, has risen by more than 12 times since decimalisation was carried out. The result of that is the humble penny is looking an awful lot humbler. So when the penny was first introduced, 
it had the spending power of roughly a modern tenpence piece. Nowadays, though, it's much closer in value to the old farthing in the early 1960s at the time that that coin was withdrawn. So this loss in value has been a slow process, sort of playing out over five decades. But some recent changes in the economy have perhaps brought the death of the penny much closer to hand. The pandemic accelerated a fairly long-running trend of falling cash usage. But then the recent sharp spike in inflation that Britain has experienced since 2021 has been just as significant. Prices have risen just over 20% since January 2021. And that's forced a general reappraisal of pricing strategies by a lot of consumer-facing firms. In particular, the death of so-called charm pricing. Charm pricing is something that's long sought to persuade consumers that an item represents good value, usually by pricing it just below a whole number, which is why we used to see lots of things priced at 99p or £1.49 or whatever it might be. People think, oh, it costs less than a pound, oh, it costs less than £1.50. Study in 1997 found that 60% of all advertised prices back then ended in the digit nine. Such strategies are now becoming much less common. We've just had this 20% odd change in prices over just a couple of years. Things have had to be repriced, and as things have been repriced, they've generally moved away from these old 99p pricing. So supermarkets have generally switched to most prices, ending in zeros and fives. One argument traditionally for keeping forms of coinage has been what economists call seigneuriage. That's the profit that governments make from the difference between the face value of a coin and the cost of its production. Sadly, that's not a reason to stick with the penny. The National Audit Office noted recently that the Royal Mint has been making a loss on coin making for several years. The penny has so little value that just the process of making one costs more than a penny. Slowly but surely then, the penny is going the way of the farthing. You can already see that in the numbers produced. So in 2022, just 30 million pennies were minted. 30 million might sound like a lot. People might wonder why I'm saying just. But a decade ago, the Royal Mint was producing 200 million pennies a year. And before that, in the 2000s, it was producing half a billion a year. It's slowly but surely falling out of use. The same forces, of course, are also at work on the value of the two-pence coin. So when the penny finally does disappear, it might at least have a companion. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show, what you love and what you perhaps don't love by emailing us at podcasts at economist.com. We'll see you back here tomorrow. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. 
It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.